0: Our passage this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy 33. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the 10,000s of Holy Ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you, when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, where the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, And bring him in to his people. With your hands, contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. And of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your thummim and your urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed by the Lord be his land, with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath, with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph. "'On the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. "'A firstborn bull, he has majesty, "'and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. "'With them he shall gore the peoples, "'all of them, to the ends of the earth. "'They are the ten thousands of Ephraim. "'They are the thousands of Manasseh. "'And of Zebulun, he said, "'Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, "'and Issachar in your tents. "'They shall call peoples to their mountain. "'There they offer right sacrifices.' for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel, he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. And of Asher, he said, Most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rise through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Every word of this book that we have open in front of us is inspired, breathed out by God, so that means for us as we open it that we are not an audience to be entertained, but are people that need to see in this what needs to equip us, and we need to behold in it the glory of our God. And so we, as people who are not just a passive audience, will want to enter into this time together, and at times we we read through prayers together so that we are reminded together how we're approaching this word. So read the underlying portions of this prayer uh, together. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, with us your spirit, soften our hearts. That we may in your presence. Sharpen our minds. That we may your truth. Shape our wills. That we may your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, likely you guys have noticed that through the ends of these chapters in Deuteronomy, that Moses has been getting a bit dark lately. I, I, I'm assuming that you guys have felt that. That's maybe why there was this cheer for Romans. Like, it's not like, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to finish up Deuteronomy. It's been getting a bit dark. So you're like, Romans, light, that'll be good. Uh, Moses has been getting a bit dark. He, he, he gives them the law, and he moves from the law, and he puts them on two mountains, and he says... Uh, On these two mountains, let's pronounce here out loud with one another the curses of this law so everybody can hear. And he puts in front of them in the the curses of the law, the the choice of, of life and death in the promised land. And then he spends a, another chapter right after that to spell out the very specifically all those curses and what they will look like uh, on the ground in, in kind of graphic detail that we would we would not ever want to say should they not be the very words given to us in the Scripture. Then he moves maybe to a bit happier place and says, well, jo- Joshua, he's with us. He's going to lead you on to the promised land. But then they tell Joshua, they state very publicly and openly the reality uh, that Joshua is going to be leading into the promised land a stubborn and rebellious people who are going to quickly turn aside and and start worshiping idols. And then Moses moves to this song that he teaches them. That's a song that you you think like most songs are pretty happy. Uh, It's a song that's full of darkness where he talks about all the the bleak bleak, uh, prospects in the promised land for the people of God. Well, finally, I think maybe in chapter 33, Moses lightens the mood a bit and he gives these blessings, almost as his final word to the people. But again, first, we still didn't finish the end of chapter 32. First, there's still a bit of darkness. Hanging over the entire book of Deuteronomy is the truth, the the declared truth from God that Moses isn't going into the promised land. And that's where chapter 32 ends. That very day, this is 32 verse 48, the Lord spoke to Moses Go up to this mountain of the Abirim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho. And view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving the people of Israel for possession. And die on the mountain which you go up. And be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. And because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. The waters of Meribah, where Moses broke faith, with God, where he didn't uphold the Lord as holy, was this place where the people were in need of water, and God tells Moses to go and speak to this rock so that water could flow out of it for the people of God. And instead, Moses is incited to anger, and he strikes the rock, and water flows. And because of that, God says to him, you're not going into the promised land because you didn't uphold me as holy, and you broke faith with me. And this consequence to Moses, the sin and the consequence to Moses, have been repeated. Here they are on the edge of the promised land, they're they're preparing to move in to dispossess the people in the land, and God reminds Moses, again, you're not going in. His sin and the consequence of his sin has been recorded and it has been repeated. It's known by all of Israel. Why? Is God trying to shame Moses by bringing this up to him again? Rubbing it in his face like, go up on the mountain. I want you to look good and long of what you're not getting while the people walk in. I don't think that's true of God. I don't think that's what he's doing. His death was spoken of in chapter 3. His death is now spoken of again here. He bookends the law preparing them for the the entering into the promised land with his very life and its consequences. In other words, what's bookended on either side of the law is a man who didn't uphold the Lord as holy, who broke faith with the Lord, and so here on either side of it, here we have the consequences of what that looks like. It seems as if Moses' exclusion for breaking faith with the Lord is a Sharp reminder to the people of God. His breaking faith, his not upholding the Lord as holy, it casts a shadow forward into the promised land. It serves as a warning of what it looks like for the people of God to break faith with God. His death and his exclusion, they serve as this example and they serve the purpose of encouraging Deuteronomy's message, which is, you need to fear the Lord your God. Do the words of this law, obey these things, keep these things. Don't break faith with the Lord. Don't fail to uphold the Lord as holy. Don't go the way of Moses. And so these words, I think, cast a shadow at a pivotal time, just before they're getting ready to enter the promised land. They're they're just hours away from walking into the land, and Moses is saying, I'm getting ready to die because I didn't uphold the Lord as holy. It's a striking warning because they can see Moses. They've known his leadership. They've known what he's like. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 says of Moses that he's the meekest man on the earth. This was the man who can go up on the mountain and speak with God when everyone else is trembling with fear and thinks that they might die if they hear another word from him. This is the man who would enter into the tabernacle when sometimes consuming fire would come out of it and consume people. He would still go in. This is the man that he would speak to the Lord, it says, face to face, so so that he'd have to put a veil over his face to come back to meet with the people because his face was glowing from the glory of God. This is the man who is not going into the promised land. And if that man can fall, then Israel had better take Warning, if that man can fail to uphold the Lord as holy, though he'd seen so much of his greatness and glory, if he can fail to uphold him as holy, and if he can break faith and be excluded from the promised land, then Israel better take heed. Paul, knowing the ever-present temptation in humanity to look back on people like Moses and the Israelites and say stuff like, I would never do that. Warned us by looking back at the wilderness generation and saying, All you, 1 Corinthians 10 12, who think that you stand, take heed. Be careful lest you fall. Paul's warning here raises this question Do I think that I stand? Do I have this sense of security and safety in my own resources, in my own life, to where I think that I can stand? And if the answer is yes, if so, Paul says, take heed. Be careful. Have you ever said that, I stand? Maybe we don't say it, but you might be thinking you're, you're listening to Confession in a home group, and you're like, so glad I'm not like that man. Or I would never go that way. Well, outwardly you might be nodding like I totally understand what you're dealing with. Inwardly you're saying I would never do that. You ever thought I stand when you hear another's confession? Or in reading scripture and you think of Mary Magdalene coming to Jesus like I would never be as bad as that. Or you think of the thief on the cross. How, how could he cast insults at Jesus? I'm so glad I'm not like that. Those are easy things, natural things within us that rise up. Jesus had a lot to say to people that had that kind of attitude rising up within them. Do we consider when we hear of other sin, do we consider the strong possibility that we don't stand near as strong as we think we do? Do we consider the strong possibility that we're not as faithful as we think we are? That we're not as strong as we think we are. That we're not as holy as we think we are. That we're not as humble as we think we are. Do we really take heed? Jonathan Edwards had this resolution. He had several. This one has stuck with me. He said this, "Resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. We automatically are like, we think people are more vile than we are. Right? When we went through the Ten Commandments, we like we got to the, the place when it said, you know, you should not murder. And it's like if any place within the Ten Commandments where we feel like we stand, it might be there. It's like, well, at least I haven't murdered somebody. And Jesus has a few things to say about that to draw out our sinful heart. And here's a man who's trying to pursue the Lord, love the Lord. And he's saying, I, I want to be to where I could speak and do as, as if no one were, were as vile as I am. And as if I had committed the same sins, not, I'm better than this person, or I would never, or how could they? But as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote pride? No, promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. What would your home group be like if that was the, the, the tenor the, the attitude the, the, the ways that people approach one another in confession what would the community be like if we, if we came like that to say no one here is more vile than I and if I hear some sin let me also confess my own infirmities that I see within me and take heed lest I also fall and go the same direction knowing but for the grace of God I'm going there What would it look like if in places that we think we stand, or we look at others and say, I stand there, if we said, no, I I can't stand but by the grace of God. See, the places where we think we stand, where we look at others and say, I would never, are the places that are full of potential to fall. Those are the kind of places they breed self-sufficiency, self-confidence, self-assurance. They lead us to relying on our own knowledge, our own experience, our own works, so that we think that we're protected from falling in those places because we have all of these things in store. And not only will those places not propel us to continue to hold the Lord as holy or prevent us from breaking faith, they also reject the very nature and life that God would have each of his people to live. He, He calls us to live a life of faith not of sight, a life of trust and dependence, of leaning on Him, of abiding in Him. We're not to live a life of standing on our own. I stand. Got my own two feet here, I'm doing just fine. That's not the Christian life. We're not to live a life of looking to others and say, well, not me. We're to live a life of daily bread and fresh manna. Where we take heed and we move constantly in dependence upon God. God has always been using all things, Moses, his life, his example, his story, and all things to form a people who will move in dependence upon him. And Moses' impending death, it's casting a shadow forward into the promised land so that the people might take heed and move into the promised land in dependence lest they fall and go the same direction Moses went. He wants a dependent people. And so Moses' death casts a shadow on the Israelite generation preparing for the promised land. So it's still a bit dark. But finally Moses kind of seems to change his tune a bit and moves to a a time of blessing. Verse 1 in chapter 33, this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God blessed the people of Israel before his death. Apparently, he wasn't too embittered by God, hearing again of his sin and the consequences of his sin, to not turn around and then bless the people of God. He, he doesn't seem to pause at all. He moves to the blessing. Now, that Moses here, on the edge of the promised land, and essentially in his deathbed, blessing the people puts him within some, some great company. He here, on his deathbed, blessing the Twelve tribes has happened before. There's one parallel that is, comes before this, and that's with Jacob, known as Israel. And, and on his deathbed, he brings his sons together and he blesses them. And, and I think that this is intentional. This is launching Moses as one among the patriarchs. This is putting Moses up there with us to say, in a sense, that, that Moses is a father of Israel. And since he could look around to these people and, and say that he was a father to them. And so he begins his blessing with that kind of uh, uh, position before them, and he starts to bless the 12 tribes. But he doesn't begin with the tribes, he begins with the Lord. Verse 2, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone from Mount Paran. He came from the 10,000s of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. He, He starts up high with this Lord who is unparalleled. He he is this one who who has come down, and and he speaks of this, I think, in this verse of the theophany at Sinai, where God descended upon Sinai. And it's portrayed poetically as this cosmic event where the Lord shows his might and his power on that mountain to his people. And although he came with great power, in verse 3, it shows us that he also came with love. Yes, he loved his people. Again, this is a Lord who is unparalleled. He is both powerful and descends on this mountain in great might, but he also comes to his people with great love. He didn't set fire upon Israel. He set his love upon Israel. This is the one who had redeemed them, who'd saved them, who'd rescued them, who made them his very own, who is making covenant with them. And he comes in fire, but he reveals himself lovingly to them on Sinai as one who is going to guide them and lead them forward. One who, uh, uh, verse 3 continues, as it continues, one who's going to reign and rule over them as king. It says, yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hands, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. Would Moses commanded us as a law, as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshuan, run. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. The Lord is king. He came and he defeated the enemy, didn't he? He defeated Egypt. He, he freed his people from slavery. He rescued them from that. He protected them from their enemies, sustained them in the wilderness. He gave them the law. These are the works of a king. And the affirmation and the display of all these things are an affirmation and display of the Lord's kingship over Israel. This is why later when they're going to ask for a king, the Lord's going to say, You can give them a king. Their rejection is not a rejection of you. It's actually a rejection of me as king because here's the Lord doing all those kingly things. And so Moses, before he begins pointing out the tribes and singling them out and blessing them, points them upward to the Lord who'd revealed himself to them, who'd spoken to them, redeemed them, who reigns and rules over them as king. And so the blessings that he he gives before he goes there, he goes to the Lord. And blessing starts there. Moses reminds them of their beginning, of their God, of his character, of his loving, kingly acts. So that they know that any hope of any of these blessings coming to fruition are all predicated upon this God and his character. The blessings that Moses gives are, are an expression of hopes and wishes that he has for them in the promised land. He, he makes statements of, of what is going to be, or what he hopes will be for these tribes. And he begins with Reuben, and it's very short. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. Reuben's the oldest. He's certainly not the most prominent. He defiled his father's couch. That's how it's stated a couple different times in Scripture. I'll let you read about that in Genesis 35, if you desire. That set an unstable trajectory for the tribe of Reuben from that point on. So he kind of, in a sense, follows suit with Jacob's blessing Which was an odd blessing, but understandably odd. In verse 7, he moves on. Then he said to to Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people with your hands. Contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. There's, again, hints of of kingship. And Moses asks for Judah, let them be heard. Let them have success in battle. And then he moves right on to Levi. And of Levi, he says, Give Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said and said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you, the whole burnt offerings of your altar. Levi gets a lot of attention. Their tribe gets a lot of attention. They are to play a key role with the people of Israel in the promised land. They're responsible for the Thummim and the Urim, which were worn on the, breast, the priestly breastplate and are means of, of determining kind of the, the will of God. They're discerning divine will and guidance for the people of God. They get to do this because they are proven covenant keepers. You might remember the, the testing that they had. They had a couple different times. One of them was at the golden calf incident where Moses comes down from the mountain and he finds these people worshipping a golden calf and he basically draws a line and says who's on this side and who's not? Who's on the Lord's side and who's not? And, and the people of Levi, the Levites, they jump over with the Lord. Not a great situation but Levi seems to have been tested there and stood strong. Their role then as proven covenant keepers is to teach the law. To help Israel walk in covenant faithfulness. To help them walk in keeping of the law that they've been given. Notice that they're also responsible for the worship of, the gods, of god's people. For making of sacrifices and offerings. It, it, so in other words, through these priests and through this pri- priestly line comes guidance from God. Comes covenant keeping and covenant faithfulness they are helping Israel keep the covenant so they're giving actual teaching of the law and, and worship sacrifices and offerings made to God these are the responsibilities of Levites and they play a critical role in the promised land that's why I think Moses says really clearly verse 11 bless O lord his substance and accept the work of his hands and crush the loins of his adversaries of those who hate him that they rise not again So vital is their role that these things need to happen. We need, bless his substance and crush his enemies. Let them not multiply. We need Levites and their work to multiply. So strength and protection for them. Next he moves to Benjamin in verse 12. And he says, the beloved of the Lord. You you remember Benjamin was was the second of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. And so beloved of his father. He's beloved of the Lord here, dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all Day long, and dwells between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed be the Lord, by the Lord be his hand, his land, with the choicest gifts of heaven above, and of the deep that crouches beneath, with the choicest fruits of the sun, and the rich yield of the months, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains, and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best fruits of the earth, and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince. Among his brothers, a firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox, and with them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Now, the blessing to Joseph is longer than all but Levi's, which I think helps, again, put Levi's role in the promised land in perspective. Joseph receives this extensive blessing as well. And that's, I think, in response to Joseph and his tribe, the kind of the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh underneath him, is one of the most prominent in early Uh, Israelite history, you think even of of Egypt and how it set this trajectory, how he becomes prince and saves his people. His tribe becomes very prominent so that when they go into the promised land, they're gonna need some blessings to be poured out through Joseph and his tribe because they're a big tribe and they're needed for the victory. They're needed to be faithful. And so here they have that reflected in the length of blessing that is given. And the good of all creation is spoken of here for Joseph. Heaven above, the, the deep down below, the sun, the mountains, the hills, and the earth. There's wealth, there's prosperity, there's abundance. But also not to be missed was tucked away in there. verse 16, also what he wants upon him right in the middle there is the favor of him who dwells in the bush. Now Moses had an encounter with a bush. It was on fire. And he had to turn aside and figure out what was going on at this bush. And he goes, and when he gets close to that bush, he has to take off his sandals because it's holy ground. And out of that bush comes this voice, the voice who identifies himself as the I Am. And this voice then launches Moses out to deliver his people from slavery, to bring them into the promised land. In other words, the one who dwelled in that bush was the one who moved to redeem Israel and to make covenant relationship with them. And it's clear then that if that's the God who is the one who gives favor from the bush, if that's him, that this is the favor. That if you have this favor, you don't need any other favor. That, That if you get the favor of one from this bush, that's all the favor you could ever need. Now, heaven and earth pouring out blessing, like heaven above, earth beneath, sun, moon, mountains, all those things is one thing. But what about the one who pours out blessing that made all of those things? That's the favor of the one who dwells in the bush verse 18 continues the blessings he goes to Zebulun of Zebulun he said rejoice Zebulun in your going out and Issachar in your tents they shall call your peoples to their mountain there they offer right sacrifices for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand and of Gad he said blessed be he who enlarges Gad, Gad crouches like a lion he tears off arm and scalp Apparently, Gad's pretty tough tribe. To don't mess with him. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there's a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people, and with Israel he executed the justice of the Lord and the judgments for Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. And of Asher, he said, most blessed of sons be asher let him be the favorite of his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil your bars shall be iron and bronze and as your days so shall your strength be so he finishes these tribes there's protection there's abundance there's wealth there's safety there's security there's power and might all of these are called for and spoken for these tribes but, but as we in the end of the blessings upon these tribes, there's a few notable details, aren't there? Did you notice anything interesting here? Here's one, is that there's a tribe missing. We, we didn't hear of Simeon, did we? There's maybe not a, an easy explanation for this other than to say that it's, it's thought, and it even you can hear it kind of laid out as Moses speaks these blessings over there, as if Moses doesn't go through in any sense of, of chronological order. He's not going through birth order. That's all mixed up and jumbled in between there. But he's, he's looking at it geographically almost, as if he arranges the blessings geographically, and he's moving around thinking of almost even the geographic locations of these tribes. And, and Simeon isn't mentioned. Simeon's actual, their geographic location, they were had territory within Judah's territory. So maybe that's why they're omitted. I think that seems quite plausible that they are missing because they are looked at geographically and they're included within Judah. But did you also notice that Judah didn't receive much? We, we know, like where's the line of Judah? Like where, this is the kingly line. We need Judah. Like you need to give as many blessings to Judah as you can. Like can we do the loin one, uh, uh, crushing of the loins of the enemies of Judah too? Like we, Can we iron bars? They need iron bars. We need some more over here with Judah. Like You spent a long time with Joseph, but but we need kings that have that kind of support over here. So where's the support for Judah? It doesn't seem to receive the, the kind of prominence that we might expect of one that's going to bring forth Solomon and David and these great kings that we need to lead the people of God forward. And I think that that reflects the message of Deuteronomy that though it is not explicit until verse 5 of chapter 33, Deuteronomy has been presenting a very clear case that we already have a king in Israel. We have a king over Israel, and it is the Lord himself. Again, so much so that later the Lord's going to say, they're actually, when they're asking for a king, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, or anything else. They're actually rejecting me as being king over them. Because in reality, the Lord was king over them he has been portrayed as king in verse 5 he's doing the guiding of a king the teaching of a king the ruling of a king the protecting of a king he's already done the work of freeing his people as a king like he's doing kingly things he is the one who saved them defeated their enemies gives them covenant he even gives them stipulations within that covenant because he is the one who is on a different you know authority level than they are they are to listen to him as king he leads them So Moses, I think, knows that the only king that they ever will need is the Lord. So maybe that's why Judah's not so prominent. On the other hand, did you also notice that Levi receives all sorts of prominence? The the Levites. This has been, I think, consistent as well through the book of Deuteronomy. There are a few different times when Moses makes a special point to make sure that the Levites are protected and taken care of in the land. He, He reminds them, They don't have a possession in the land, but when you come to bring offerings and sacrifices, don't neglect them. Don't forget them. You need to make sure that you take care of them. He makes sure, that's chapter 18, there's several places where it's also found. He reserves a a long blessing for them because he wants them to receive this prominent place within the very conscience of Israel. Because for them, they are an important role in the promised land. He reserves the longest blessing for them not what we would think the ever important Judah, but for them because of their key role. What's their role? He said it. Guide them, thumb them, urim, give divine guidance to the people of God. They're going to need it. Teach them the statutes and the law, teach them to obey. They're going to need it. Uh, lead them as covenant mediators. Make their sacrifices and offerings for them. Be servants in the temple. Like, you guys are the ones, as all the people of God, like, you're the ones that are gonna give all the people of God access to the living God. That's how God set it up. So you're gonna play an important role. In other words, the Levites point to Israel's ultimate purpose in the promised land. And their ultimate purpose was to be in relationship to God. They were to be the people of God God was to be God over them. They are to live in relationship with one another. They are to be worshipers. He is to be worshiped. And Levites were to be the mediators of that. And so Israel's ultimate purpose in the promised land wasn't to be farmers and to till the land. Their ultimate purpose wasn't to be warriors and make sure they dispossessed the peoples of the land. It was to be worshipers of the one true living God. The temptation that we've seen over and over again in the curses that Moses has pronounced, is for them to go into the land and grow fat. To be comfortable in the promised land. To be those who just start consuming and and forget their ultimate purpose. And the Levites are meant to point them to that purpose. That you're not here to grow fat and to be farmers. That you're not here just to dispossess the people in the lands as warriors. That you're here to be worshippers. You might remember when we went through in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra's getting ready. This is after their captivity in Babylon, after their exile. He's getting ready to return to the promised land. He's a priest. He's ready to take the people back. But on the, the, the very, you know, kind of minutes of their departure, he waits. And he looks around and he says, wait a minute. We can't go yet. Do you remember why they couldn't go? It's been a while since we've done that, so no Levites we're going to need Levites. Why? Because we're not going back to the land just to be there. We're going back to the land to be worshipers of the one true living God in the place that he has given for us to be those people. And so we're going to wait, and they wait, and they pray, and they get Levites to go with them so that they can serve their ultimate purpose in the promised land was not just to be there and take up space. It was to be there as worshipers of the one true living God. God is always seeking a people who live in relationship with him. He is always seeking for his people to be worshipers. He is seeking worshipers. That is something that's still ongoing. You Remember when Jesus, he he goes through Samaria and he meets this Samaritan woman at the well. And he starts talking to her, asking her questions. She asks him questions and, and she asks him about worship. Should we worship on this mountain or that mountain? You know, there's different stories out there. What, what do you think? And Jesus said that there's a, there's a day coming when we're not, we're not worried about worshiping on this mountain or that mountain. The true worship is going to be worship in spirit and truth. And he says to her, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's seeking them. This is what she was made for. That you might know me and worship me in spirit and in truth. This is what we were made for. We weren't made to draw water from a well that doesn't satisfy. We weren't made to merely live, to merely work, to merely consume blessings in a great place. We were made to drink living water. We were made for worship of the one true living God. And we don't do that by going to the promised land Or going to a certain mountain, we do that by going to Jesus and seeing him rightly in spirit and in truth. That this is the one true living God. And I was made, I was designed, I was built that my heart might respond to him rightly with worship as he is the worthy one. We don't do that by offering an animal on the altar anymore. We do it by presenting our very lives as a living sacrifice to him. That is our spiritual worship. That is what we are made for. What are you throwing your life on the altar for? There's only one purpose for which you have been created ultimately. And that's to throw your life on the altar in worship to the one true living God. Do you know that God? Do you know that water that satisfies? And what a God it is to worship. He's unparalleled. He's incomparable. He's matchless. He's infinitely worthy of his people's praise. That's where Moses ends the blessing. Kind of where he began. With the greatness of God. Look at verse 26. There's none like this God. Like, do you know this? Like, let's just stop there. There's none like God. Do you know that? Have you been stunned? Just stu- stop in your, in your thought as you think about the greatness and the glory of God. Have you just been awed by him? To truly know God is to know that there is none like him. Who else can create who else can redeem? Who else can speak and it not lead to our death? Because he does it in love. Who does all of those things? Create, redeem, speak, make covenant. Who else does those things in love? Like There is none like this God. Israel might be tempted, like all of us are tempted, to start looking around and thinking about these blessings in the promised land. Perhaps, and like Joseph, they're pretty strong. There's none like them. Joseph might be, there's none like us. Or they might look at the kingdoms that are there, they've got fortified walls, they've got great armies, they seem to have a lot of wisdom working on their side, like they might look at the kingdoms around them and think like there's none like them. But Moses says, don't look around at those things, let's look up and say there's none like God. No matter the blessings that they're going to receive, the fame that they might have in the world, no matter the kingdoms that are around them, there's still none like this God. And he says, there's none like this God, O Jeshuan, which is... Uh, to say that that this is another poetic way of talking of Israel, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Uh, This is a God who is transcendent. He is high and lifted up. He is above us. He's he's the one who rides in the heavens. What an awesome thought to think about. This God, he he rides through the heavens. He's transcendent. But he's also the imminent one. He, He rides through the heavens and he helps to your help. The, the seas part, that the bread falls from heaven, water flows from rocks. There's victory over their enemies because the one who rides through the heavens helps. He might be riding on the heavens, but he apparently isn't far away. And this eternal God, verse 27, is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy their protection in their history has never been in some sort of strategic position, has never been found in some sort of might that they have on their own, has never been found in their strength, their wisdom, their wealth, their abundance, that their security, their protection is found in the same place. You remember the Red Sea? It's found in that same place. Like the Egyptian army's coming, we got a sea in front of us, they're behind us, what do we do? Where's our protection? It's in the Lord's presence. He surrounds them, stops the Egyptian army, lets them walk through on dry ground, defeats the enemy. Their protection is found in that same place, the eternal arms of God. Their protection is found in the same place it was found all through the wilderness. When they should have died, when their clothes should have worn out, when their shoes should have fallen off their feet, when they should have starved, when they shouldn't have had water, their protection is found in that same place. It's in the presence of God, the arms of the eternal one. And while the promised land might, might then put them on different footing, where we now have, we kind of have a home base. We've been fighting as the away team this whole time. Now we're going to have this home base where they might have that in the promised land. Here's what he is telling them. You might have home base now, but the Lord needs to be your home. He's the eternal home for you. And his presence is their protection He's the one who's battling for them. He's with them in the battle, granting them victory so that even their enemies will say that Israel lived in safety, verse 28. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. This Lord is unparalleled. He's incomparable. And through him, Moses gets to say, happy are you? Like, we've we've been waiting for this, Moses. You've been saying a lot of mean things lately. You've cursed us a lot. It seems like you've kind of been leaning into the fact that we're going to fail, and it's going to be pretty miserable. But now you said something that we like. We like the word happy, and we're going to cling on to that. Happy are you, Israel? It's through the Lord that they're happy. In him there's security, in him there's protection, in him there's rescue, in him there's victory over their enemies. It's only through him and in him that they are happy, O Israel. And then it leads to this great question and exclamation. Who is like you, O Israel? Saved by the Lord. Who gets to say that? That's what he's getting at. Who gets to say that? There's none like this God. That's what he said earlier. And then he said, there's none like you, Israel. God chose you. He loved you. He set his love upon you. We can't figure out why. He just did it who is like you, none are like Israel, saved like Israel, protected like Israel, victorious like Israel. And so Israel then should be like, oh, I want to put all of my confidence, all of my hope, all of my trust in the one who is my protection, my safety, my security, my eternal home. That's the response. Now Moses' impending death certainly casts a shadow on the blessing. I mean, man, that's, that's a hard reality to hear right before we're getting ready to go into the promised land. But as they prepare for the promised land through Moses' words at the end of this poem, that shadow starts to flee, doesn't it? It starts to flee in light of the greatness of this God that he keeps talking about. So that all this people, they might have heard some of the shadow of Moses' death and what it looks like to have these curses fall upon you and not have life in the promised land. But we also need to hear about the light of the brilliance and the glory of our God that makes those shadows flee in every direction because of who he is. All of this people should know there is none like him. In him is an eternal dwelling place. In him is protection and security and victory. And church today... We don't see those things primarily like they do in the promised land and victory in the battle over our enemies in front of us. We see those same things primarily in Jesus. Scripture is really clear there is none like him, full of grace and truth, who through his life and death defeats his enemies and puts them to flight who through his resurrection becomes an eternal dwelling place to all those who would put their trust in him. Perhaps today you feel the shadow of death hanging, or the shadow of the world hanging, or or the shadow of your suffering hanging, or the shadow of all the things that are hard hanging over you. Let the light of the glory of Christ chase away. The Lord's Supper It is a meal that we take together as a family, as people of God, as those who are saying, all of my trust, all of my hope, all of my confidence is in God. That I don't stand, not apart from him, only through him do I stand. It's a meal where we look to Jesus as a people and say, he is our protection, he is our safety, he is our security, he is our hope. He is our only eternal dwelling place. This is a meal that confronts us with that question, is there any like this God? And if you think the answer is yes, please don't take this meal, instead we'd say, we want you to look again, we'd love to help you in that, to see who this God is and what he's like. But when we're confronted with that question, and we have hearts that trust in Jesus, when we have hearts of faith, we are left with this clear answer, there's none like him. Let's let this meal do that again to us, as we think back in the life Death and resurrection and future coming of our Lord. Let's let it confront us with this question, is there anyone like him? And let us respond rightly by taking this meal and say, there is none. Let's pray together as we prepare for this meal.
2: I just want to take a few minutes to uh, just let you guys reflect and what you just heard and just pray personally uh, just in response to the sermon and then I'll, I'll pray for us. God, there is none like you. You are holy. You are majestic. You are powerful, all-knowing, everywhere. You are God alone. And Lord, we look at a man like Moses, and on his worst day, There's probably not a person in this state whose best day would be better than his worst day. And yet, he was not worthy to obtain the ultimate blessing on his own. He was not perfect as you are. He was so far from it, Lord. It's just such a stark reminder of our need for the blood of Jesus. And we rejoice today, Lord, we are filled with joy because we're under that blood. Where we stand is only because of the rock that we stand on, where we experience victory, where we see and experience blessing It's only because of what was done for us on the cross. Lord, our righteousness alone is is filthy rags, it is detestable, it's idolatrous, it's selfish. But because you died on the cross, Jesus, because you rose from the dead and because your life and your blood pulses through our veins, we... know God and we can experience life and we can see true victory God help us to battle pride in our hearts to daily confess our need for you give us strength and focus as there's so much distraction around us there are so many idols to chase and our hearts are just idle factories, Lord. They just they don't even they don't need the help. We're broken, Lord. We are needy. And yet you are faithful. We thank you for all the blessings that we enjoy from your hand, Lord. We know that all good things come down for, from you. And we're thankful for the blessing that we have all inherited through the suffering of Christ. Help us to live like him, to be like him, to allow truth and your spirit to transform us, to form his image in us, Lord, that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.